Welcome everyone to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. Here we go indeed. Bonjour. Guten Tag. Welcome back, podcast world. The Two Tongues podcast coming at you with only one tongue, as per usual on Wednesday. What are we going to talk about today, Chris? Religion? That sounds like a great idea. Let's do that. Okay. All right. Surprise, surprise. I've got another topic about religion I want to talk about. It's my favorite, my favorite topic. So, you know, here we go. I took a class in college early on that I really enjoyed. It was called World Religions. And it taught, as you might expect, the major world religions. Um, I mean, no, no surprise that I ended up taking that class in college, although I think it was an elective. You know, I, I, didn't, I didn't get a degree in anything to do with religion, so uh, it was more for fun. But a really interesting class, and I'm not one of those people that grew up like a Catholic or a Lutheran or something, where I had religion class. Uh, if Kyle were here, um, he would have he would have some something different to say. Uh, he did go to some Christian schools and had some of that in his curriculum, but I didn't. I was in public schools the whole time. Um, you know, separation of church and state, all that kind of all that kind of thing. It was never talked about. I remember one kid, <laughs> one kid Anthony, who used to pray before he ate lunch in the cafeteria and it was fucking weird nobody else prayed um he did it every day without fail and was not embarrassed you know that was his choice and good for him and it made an impression on me i still remember to this day but i bring that up simply to point out in public school that was weird there was no religion class uh, we didn't. We weren't allowed to talk about it. Actually, you know, if somebody heard us talking about religion, I'm sure it would. You know, it wouldn't. It would, it would be quashed. It was again. It just didn't happen. Um, again, if you grew up, if you grew up in Catholic, uh, Catholic or or Lutheran or something, and you had those sorts of classes, or if you grew up, you know, Muslim, let's say, and you and you had that, you know, component to your kind of upbringing. For me, what I learned about religion was limited to. I don't want to call them silly, but child versions of biblical stories in Sunday school, one day a week from the ages of five to the ages of maybe 10 or something like that. It wasn't a deep education. It wasn't a deep education. Um, when I got to high school and I met the, the, the first Muslim I ever met in my life, shout out to the Hadars, um, it, it was very interesting to me. And... Growing up in a middle-class suburban area, there wasn't a lot of other religions, right? It, it, was, it wasn't a lot of other religions. Um, I remember I had a, a Mormon and a Muslim in class, and we did nothing but talk about religion and get yelled at 
because it was like social studies class or something. Point is, I always had an interest in it, and it was, I never had much opportunity to learn about it. And growing up, you know, in the 90s, in, in the early 2000s, when I was in school, I don't think that's unusual. Um, across the entire country, I don't think that's unusual. Maybe you have, maybe there's some differences if you're living in New York or something, but, uh, you know, it was, it was par for the course. I get to college, I take this class, World Religions, and I get a bunch of information. Um, so this is where I want to start. That, that class highlighted a series of religions. They called them the major world religions because these are the ones, you know, we're not talking about any religions that have a small amount of followers. We're talking about the largest religions in the world. What do they believe? And some of the stuff I knew and some of I didn't. And so that scope was like this. Hinduism, Buddhism, Judaism, Christianity. I'm going to stop there because those were the religions I knew something about coming into that class. Um, Hinduism, obviously, uh, you know, largely, largely that's India, um, you know, and Buddhism is largely, you know, East Asia and Judaism, the Middle East, Christianity, you know, the, uh, Western Europe, um, that pretty much encompasses the majority of religious, religious people in the world. But then there's a couple others that I learned about that I never heard of before. So I'm going to, oh, forgive me. I, I, uh, forgot Islam there in that in that group, and I should have. So Hinduism, Buddhism, Judaism, Christianity, Islam. I had some information about that. But there's three others in the major world religions that I never heard of. So I'm willing to, willing to bet some of you maybe have never heard of them either. Jainism, Sikhism, and Baha'i. You ever heard of them? I hadn't either. Um, Sikh, Sikhs, I mean... There's like a gas station uh, near where I used to live, and the guy that runs it is a Sikh, and I uh, talk to him briefly. But you'll, I associate Sikhs with turbans, and I, that's I don't know if that's fair or not. But I, whenever I see somebody in a turban, I sort of assume that they're a Sikh. Maybe that's not fair. I'm just I'm just sharing that with you. So if you ever see anybody with a turban. Uh, maybe they're Sikh, um, but they're like a very, very pacifist type religion, you know, uh, kind of like Buddhism in that way. Um, not harming things, not killing things, very important, um, you know, and there's some interesting things to do with Jainism and Sikhism, but I don't, I don't want to talk about that today. I want to talk about Baha'i and I, maybe I'm mispronouncing that, uh, B-A-H-A apostrophe I, Baha'i, Baha'i, I don't know. I don't know, but this is the religion I want to talk about today. Um, have you ever heard of it? It's a major world religion, right up there with Buddhism and Christianity and Hinduism, right? A lot of people, a lot of people adhere to this religion. So many that it's considered one of these major world religions. Have you ever heard of it? Me either. Okay, so I got introduced to this in that class. I was very interested at the time, but I never really dug into it. And then I took this podcast really has an opportunity to dig into it because I was kind of interested in it. And I want to talk to you about this today. Um, this is how I want to introduce it. Have you ever wondered if all religions come from the same source? I mean, we've, most of us have thought about that from time to time. You know, human beings are different. Across time, across space, we're different. So if you have some religious ideas and people move away from each other, and after enough time has gone by and enough distance has gone by, um, they speak different languages, they have different cultures, and those religious ideas now 
are very different, right? They might have been the same once upon a time, but they're very different now. So you could see how maybe that's possible. You know, human beings seem to have this religious tendency. If that goes back to the very beginning of humanity, maybe we had these kind of basic ideas and they developed as we spread out all over the world. Um, and the ones that went one direction and the ones that went the other direction, they're very different from one another. So it's possible that all religions maybe come from the same source. And if that's the case, might it be possible to reconcile all of the religions with one another? Can we be friends? Can't we all just be friends? Something like that. So what if the differences between religions could be reconciled? What if a new religion could be born that would unify everyone in the world? It would unify all of the world religions. It would stop all of the fighting and the strife and the death that goes along with religious conflict. What if that religion recognized all of the prophets of the past? Moses, Zoroaster, Buddha, Jesus, Muhammad, all of it, right? What if we, what if we had a religion like that? What if that religion already exists? What if its prophet was born in 1819? And no, I'm not talking about Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism. He, he was born in 1805. What if this religion already exists? That, you guys, is Baha'i. So let's talk about it. Before we get into it, it's kind of important that we start talking about prophets, right? Because whenever you have a new religion, there's usually somebody responsible for it. And normally we call that person a prophet or something like it. Somebody sent by God. Maybe they're a messenger. They have a message from God. Maybe they're a reformer. They're somebody who's going to come and correct where we went wrong in the past. Um, you know, maybe those prophets form a new religion. Maybe they change an old religion. Maybe they extend from some existing religion. You know, it's, it, they come in all flavors, Prophets come in all shapes and sizes. But generally, when a new religion is started, you can trace it back to a person, to an individual. Um, a prophet, a messenger, if you want to, if you want to use that language, and that, that's what we're going to do today. And when we start talking about prophets, there's usually like one of two ways that we think about it. We think about there being one true prophet like somebody who's bringing the actual message, the truth, let's say, and everyone else is maybe like a false prophet. So there's that, there's that perspective. It's that we believe in this guy and whatever he taught, and he's the, he's the truth. And he, you know, what he taught is, is, is legitimate and everybody else is the devil, uh, something like that. Um, then there is a, then there's a way of looking at it. That's like as a continuum. And th you can see this in Judaism. It's like, you start off with Moses, and then you have Abraham, and then you have Elijah, right? It's like there are different characters in the Jewish Old Testament that rise at different times in history to be the carrier of some new message or some new direction or to correct the Jews when they go astray. So you, ha you do see what looks like a continuum of prophets in something like Judaism, which is different from something like, if let's just take Islam for a second, um, and, and it's not a great example because in Islam they do recognize Jesus, for instance, they do recognize Zoroaster even, um, and they were prophets of completely different religions, which is interesting. But you do hear people in Islam say that Muhammad is the true prophet, 
and you you hear them say that um, the Christian message about Jesus is wrong. So what Muhammad brought to the table was was the truth, and it was correcting an error that the Christians fell into. When Jesus came as a messenger, and the Christians said, oh, he's God, that was our mistake. So, so Muhammad shows up to correct that error. Um, you know, that's one of the reasons why, why you know, he, uh, he, was, he arose on the scene. So in that perspective, you can see how Muhammad is the one true prophet, and anybody else who comes along to say he's wrong it, it should be crushed because they're wrong and leading everyone astray. And so you do see those two ways of looking at a prophet. Either they're the one true prophet representing the one true religion and everybody else is wrong, or this is the next in a series of prophets that have come before them and many will come after them. And there's no end to it. You know, there's no pinnacle to it. Um, it's, this, it's this ladder approach, this continuum of messengers or prophets this is what the Baha'i religion grasps a hold of, and it's interesting. And there's a way in which I love it, because I look at these figures of ancient world religions, and I see that they lived in different times, in different places, and they taught different messages, but I see a thread that connects them all, and I kind of like that approach. And I do think that you can use that approach to try to bring peace or to reconcile the hatred and the, you know, uh, the, the divisiveness between believers of different religions. I think that is a way of doing it. Um, and the Baha'i religion has done that. This is what they've grabbed a hold of. I don't want to give you, I don't want to mislead you. I don't want to give you this pers- perspective that I, that I vouch for this religion or that I believe it. Um, I have my questions about it, and I'm going to try to bring that up today. But I think the idea is really interesting. I think it's good-willed. I think it's good-natured. I think it's very optimistic. I like this idea of bringing an end to the pain and suffering and disagreement and divisiveness among the human race, that (laughs) we draw that line in all sorts of ways. Today, it's race you know, sexual orientation, political affiliation. But historically, it's been religion. That's been the biggie. So if we could remove the barriers that religions, different religions pose in separating us, like what kind of good might come from that? And I think that is a, is a good question to ask. And I think it's a laudable goal. Did the Baha'i religion do that? Did they do it well? Um, I mean, it's a major world religion, right? There's a lot of people that believe it. So let's get into it. Let's get into it. All right, so we talked about what is a prophet a little bit and the different ways that we we see them in history. Um, a prophet is either thought about as a messenger of God, and this is really common in uh, the Muslim perspective. You know, they, they, they literally call Muhammad a messenger. They called Jesus a messenger, and they believed what those people were doing was bringing some truth from from God, you know, from the supernatural realm to either enhance or correct humanity in some important way. So there's this idea that a prophet is a messenger, somebody who communicates with God or is able to bring messages from God, maybe even an embodiment of God. So you could think about the Christian perspective of Jesus. Do we believe Jesus was a prophet? Yes, we do. We, we say that the same way as, as Muslims say that. We go a step further than a Muslim would when we talk about Jesus, uh, but we do say that. 
that Jesus is an embodiment of God, that what a prophet is is something like God on earth. That's how we talk about Jesus. Now, Christianity limits that to Jesus, but there are lots of other prophets. Can we say other prophets were like that? You know, Christians don't want to do that because Jesus is the end-all, be-all for a Christian. That, you know, any other prophets simply don't matter. Um, but then there's also the, the notion that a prophet is somebody who sees the future. You know, you can think of that like the Oracle of Delphi. You go to see the, the prophet. You go to see the priestess there. She tells you the future. So, you, so there's, there's that component. Um, and so it's not clear, you know, if a prophet is somebody that's inspired by God or, or possessed by God or whether they're God himself, an embodiment of God, the way that a Christian thinks about Jesus. I don't know if you ever thought about that, but there's different, those different ways that we think about a prophet. We use that word, which like we, it could be any of those three things, and nobody ever really asks um, why we do that. Why do, why do we use that word prophet to mean somebody who brings a message from God, somebody who might be God himself, or somebody that's possessed by some supernatural spirit, somebody who can tell the future, like all of those things, that's a prophet, all of those things, maybe maybe they have some of those characteristics, maybe they have all of them, but they're all, you know, anybody like that's a prophet, it's weird. Shouldn't we have different names for these, for these different types of religious characters? You know, it's weird. So how does, so how does the Baha'i, how, how do they, what's their angle here? All right, I want to read two passages before I get into this that are from the Bible. The reason I'm doing this is because what you're going to find here very soon is that Baha'i came from Islam. The founder of this religion was Islam, he was a Muslim, um, but a type of Muslim that appreciates the unity of people of the book. And you might hear that if you talk to if you talk to, uh, to, to Muslim people, they'll tell you that the Quran recognizes Jews and Christians and even Zoroastrians. That's interesting. Even Zoroastrians. Um, as people who in, received inspiration, received a sacred book from God. They're all people of the book like the Muslims. They're all a part of this family. And they're, so that, that it's an interesting perspective. And, and, it's important because if you if you get into Islam at all, what you're going to find is that there's a lot of overlap between Islam and Christianity, between Judaism and Islam. And a lot of it, because Islam is the latest of, of the three, is borrowed directly from these other religions, including um, admiration for Mary, admiration for Jesus. I mean, Jesus is the second most important person in Islam, second only to Muhammad. So you've got all of that. Uh, wrapped up in uh, the Quran and including lots of the stories that are told in the Old Testament and the New Testament. So I want to read a couple of these because this is going to go directly to Baha'i. It's going to go directly to this religion. The first one I want to read to you comes from uh, first chapter of John, and it, it's before Jesus shows up on the scene when John the Baptist is baptizing people, and Jesus is getting ready to show up and get baptized. So there's all these people there, and John says to them, I baptize with water, but there standeth among you whom ye know not. He it is who coming after me is preferred before me, whose shoes latch it I am not worthy to unloose. 
So here you've got John the Baptist, at the time, the most important religious figure, you know, uh, getting a lot of traction out there, baptizing people, and there's a throng of people around, right? You know, getting people excited. And what does he say? He says, I'm baptizing you, but it's not me that you need to be concerned about. There's someone who comes after me. There's another prophet coming after me whose shoe I am not worthy to unloose. So you're going to want to look for this person who's coming. Okay, so you've got John the Baptist, you've got this prophet who's talking about the next prophet. Do you understand? Okay, so now I want to skip, you know, 13 chapters ahead in John. Now this is, this is after Jesus has come and uh, been, been uh, crucified. And it goes like this, John 14, 26. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things. And bring all things to your remembrance. Whatsoever I have said unto you, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Ye have heard now, I said unto you, I go away and come again unto you. Okay, so there, there's more than one passage like this that talk about the comforter who's coming. But it, what's important here, and this passage talks about it as the Holy Ghost. If you talk to a Muslim, they will tell you that the comforter that was promised, that Jesus promised, was Muhammad, which is an interesting perspective. It's an interesting perspective. But here's the idea. Even Jesus says, look, I'm going to die, but I will be back. He says, I will come again unto you. And he says, the person I send is going to be the comforter. So you've got another prophet coming after Jesus, who Jesus is sending. And what's funny is, Jesus is saying, um, I said unto you, I go away and come again. So Jesus is saying, the prophet who's coming after me is me. I am coming again, which is really interesting. It's like this series of prophets that started, you know, who knows, with Adam, let's say, and included, and included Moses and included Abraham and included Elijah and John the Baptist and now Jesus, that this is a, this is a continuum of prophets, all of whom, according to Jesus, have been Jesus. So it's like the spirit of the prophet, whatever this is. It doesn't matter what name you call him. It doesn't matter what face he has. It doesn't matter what religion he belongs to and where he was born in the world. That when the prophet shows up, it's, it's the spirit of the messenger of God. It's Jesus. Uh, that's, what, that's, what, that's what Jesus is saying in John. So it's a really interesting perspective that even in the Christian religion, you do have, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, that you do have... John the Baptist, as the prophet, foretelling Jesus. And Jesus shows up, does his thing, and foretells the coming of the next prophet. So you do seem to have, just like the way that the Judaism proposes, you know, Moses, Abraham, Elijah, um, you've got this continuum of prophets. You've got this presence of God on earth that's always there or there periodically when it's needed, something like that. All right, so that brings us to Baha'i. So I want to give you some history uh, because it's context. It's important. Um, the, the person who founded this religion goes by a title. So the title would be something like, you know, you call Jesus Christ. Like that's a title. So he goes by a title, the Bab or Bab. I don't know how you pronounce it. B-A-B, the Bab. So I'm going to read you a little, a little um, excerpt here from, uh, from Wiki and some information that I've been able to gather. It goes like this. The Bab arose from earlier Shia Islamic movements, led by a guy named Sheikh Ahmad, uh, Sheikh Ahmad, A-H-M-A-D, in the early 1800s. 
So this, so here we have a particular person, a particular Muslim in the, from the Shia kind of group, and and he's starting to he's starting to say some unorthodox things in the 1800s. He's like got a different perspective. Um, so he's an important character. It goes on. It says this guy adopted unorthodox interpretations of the Quran. So you can imagine in the in the Islamic world, that's not not likely going to make you many friends. He's got unorthodox interpretations of the Quran, specifically about the end of times and the day of resurrection. And so those, of course, are things that you, we see in the Christian doctrine that appear in the Quran. So the idea is that the end of time and that the day of resurrection that you see in the Christian gospels and, and the Christian writings, that those things were, were borrowed and incorporated into the Islamic tradition from the earlier Christian tradition. So that's that's interesting. But this is where this Sheikh Ahmad guy uh, has problems. He's like, look, the way the Quran's talking about the end of time and the day of resurrection, I've got some different ideas about it. Here's the thing that I like. His interpretations were considered to be mystical. So whenever that word comes up, my eyebrows kind of peek up. I'm like, okay, you've got this mystical religious person. So all right away, whatever this guy's going to have to say, I'm going to find interesting. Whenever you call it mystical, you've got my attention. All right, so um, in, in uh, Sheikh Ahmad's writings, um, this gives you some idea of what, what kind of stuff he said. He said that the prophet and the imams, so he's talking about uh, Muhammad and the imams are like the, are like the priests of Islam. So he says that Muhammad and the imams that they exist both on the level of constrained being, excuse me, unconstrained being, or pre-existence, wherein they are the complete word and the most perfect man, and on the level of constrained being. So let me just stop there because it's a lot. So he's saying that uh, the prophet, the messenger of God, and the priest, the spiritual powers, you might say, that they exist in in, in two ways at once. Now, that is a very mystical thing. I'm, I'm interested in this. He's saying it, one of them is unconstrained being and one of them is constrained being. When he says unconstrained being, and it's, I love even the way he's putting that because being is a, is a word that shows up in mystic intuition all the time. It's a way of understanding the world around you and your subjective experience of it. So he says unconstrained being, which is like being without any fetters, being without any limits. It's, what does that mean? It's something like God. It's something like the infinite. Unconstrained being is infinite, unknowable. It's something like God. Constrained being is something like the material world. It's, it's the infinity of God limited into, into something specific, into something like the cosmos, into something like you and I. And so that is a really mystical perspective, and I can understand why um, Orthodox religious people would have something something to say about it. All right, so it goes on. It says, um, on this second limited plane, the cloud of the divine will subsists, and from it emanates the primal water that irrigates the barren earth of matter and of elements. What? So you see what I mean here? Now we're now we're getting this sort of poetry. It sounds like something you would see in ancient Greek philosophy or in alchemy or something like that. So he says on this second limited plane, he's talking about the material world. He says in in being, in the material world, there is a cloud of divine will. He says it emanates from the primal water that irrigates the barren earth of matter and of elements. 
So this divine will emanates from from the cosmos. It, it just pours out of everything. The divine will, the will of God, you know, the, whatever future is going to be had, that's the divine will, right? And it just sort of is all around us all the time. He goes on, although the divine will remains unconstrained in essential being. So divine will, that's the will of God. Of course it's unrestrained. It's God we're talking about. It says it manifests aspect. Its manifest aspect has now entered into limited being. When God poured down from the clouds of will on the barren earth, he thereby sent down this water and it, and it mixed with the fallow soil. In the garden of, the, of heaven known as um, Asarach, the tree of eternity arose, and the Holy Spirit, or universal intellect, the first branch that grew upon it in the first creation among the worlds. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So you can see, if you were a conservative Muslim or a conservative Christian, and you heard somebody say some shit like that, you would probably have have something to say, right? I mean... You can't talk about shit like divine will and primal water that's not biblical, that doesn't come anywhere. You can't say shit like that without explaining it. Um, it, This is obviously very metaphorical. What is he saying? So he's talking about this unrestrained, infinite divine will, the will of God, the Spirit of God, that it manifests itself into a limited being. So everything around you, the cosmos, you, and everything else, is some sort of manifestation of God. That is a very mystical thing, and I happen to agree. You know, I happen to agree. I like that. Um, and then he mixes in this idea of this w- the will of God mixing with the water, which is something like um, God creating human beings, which he, you know, he, he mixed clay and, and, and you know, formed you know, the, the dust of the earth into clay and made human beings with it. So there's some reference here to that. Uh, plus, he brings up the garden of heaven and the tree of eternity. So he's talking about the Garden of Eden. He's talking about the tree of life. Um, you know, and those references are the mystical references from Genesis. They're the things that are weird and don't get explained. So I just point this out to you because I want you to know that there was this guy saying shit like this in the early 1800s in the Middle East, trying to convince other Muslims that he had something important to say, something that was in the Quran but wasn't but wasn't recognized. He he needed to bring it to their attention. Um he you know he had he had this other perspective, a mystical perspective. Um okay, so that's uh that's the guy that came that came first. Not really associated with this religion, but I want to point it out because the guy that we're going to call the Bab, he was influenced by this mystical type of, of Islamic teaching. All right. So there's a couple characters we want to talk about. The Bab is one of them. Uh, the other one is um, going to be difficult for me to pronounce, but I'm going to try. Um, another title, I believe, Baha'u'llah. Baha'u'llah. So we got the Bab and we've got this Baha'u'llah. All right, so this religion originally developed in Iran, um, and I don't probably don't have to point out, but I will that the majority of the Muslims, um, the, the, their form of Islam is a little different from the type that you see in Iran. So already you just have to know that a religion coming uh, a, a religion coming out of Iran is going to have some resistance from Muslims um, outside of Iran. Um, so there's already that. Plus, you've got this, this is a 
well, I'm not going to put the cart before the horse. Let me keep going here. I just want to point out that when these ideas first showed up, they were persecuted, as you can imagine. Today, Baha'i, this religion has over 5 million followers. So, quite a lot. All right, so let's get back to these three figures because it's important. The Bab. Bab was born in 1819, died in 1850. Uh, This is the person who founded the religion. This is the John the Baptist. Okay, so it says the Bab is considered a herald of who taught that God would soon send a prophet in the same way of Jesus or Muhammad. So the Bab shows up, um, early 1800s, and what he's saying is God is going to be sending a prophet. It doesn't seem like the Bab has ever said, I am the prophet. What he said is something like what John the Baptist said. It's like, I'm coming to clear the way for the guy who's coming after me. So the Bab shows up in the 1800s and says, a new prophet is coming. Baha'u'llah. Now, Baha'u'llah shows up. He was born in 1817 and he died in 1892. He claimed to be the prophet that the Bab was foretelling. Um, as you can imagine, he faced exile most of his life and imprisonment most of his life. Um, both the Bab and Baha'u'llah were, were not treated well by, um, by the government or by the religion. And, f- and for good reason, because this guy is coming in and shaking things up. Now, according to Baha'i teachings, um, this is all going to be familiar to you. God is single, so God is one. He's all-powerful. And Baha'u'llah taught that religion is revealed in an orderly and a progressive way. So that all of these different prophets that keep coming, one after the next after the next, all over the world, that they're a, a progression of, of messages coming from God that are all coming from God. So we're not, we're not saying Buddha is not part of it. We're not saying Zoroaster is not part of it. In Baha'i, we're saying they're all a part of it. All of these religious figures that came and, and, and brought new messages and, and corrected our teachings and all that stuff, these people were all inspired. They're all messengers, and they're all credible. So it starts with, you know, again, Buddha, Jesus, Muhammad are all included and we, until we get to the Bab and Baha'u'llah. So all of those are considered part of this uh, tradition of prophets or messengers. They're also called, interestingly, manifestations of God. I, I really like that. I like it for a different reason than maybe what the Bab and Baha'u'llah do. But talking about a prophet as a manifestation of God rather than as a messenger of God is an interesting, it's an interesting idea. It's saying that a human being can be God on earth. That's the way we talk about Jesus from a Christian perspective. So they're saying something like that. That these prophets who show up, Buddha included, these prophets that show up are something like God on earth. God made flesh. You know, and it, it, all of that sounds very Christian. All those, all those words sound very Christian. But the Baha'i religion is looking at all of these prophets that way, including the Bab and Baha'u'llah. And their teachings. Like, what, what is this religion teaching? Um, if you haven't kind of picked it, picked it up from the beginning, they teach the unity of God. So God is one. That's something you see in Christianity, Judaism, Islam. The unity of God, the unity of religion, and the unity of humanity. So you can kind of see some nice sort of traditional liberal ideas there. 
that if we consider God to be one, we can get rid of the differences in religion. If we consider religion to be one, uh, we're going to get rid of all the fighting and disagreements. And if we consider humanity to be, to be one, then, that, then we're going to be able to sort of seal the deal. Cherry on top of peace and prosperity for the world and for humanity. Does that sound like a good goal to you? If religion was going to do anything, does that seem like, a, like what you would want religion to do? I mean, it does. Sounds great. Sounds great to me. You know, if religion could do this, could unify people in love and instead of divide people and <laughs> cause, you know, people to want to kill one another, I mean, ultimately, it seems like a good thing. And I guess I want to emphasize that. The goal of the religion seems well-intended. It seems like a good thing. I just say that because I'm going to say some shit that's not that's not not going to be complimentary here in, in a bit. You'll see what I mean. But I just want to emphasize that the religion itself seems to have started for good reasons. It seems to, you know, whether it's inspired or not is I'll leave it up to you. But it definitely seems like it was good intended. All right. So in Baha'i, they believe that God periodically reveals His will through these divine messengers, these prophets, whose purpose is to transform the character of humankind. So we're going to have some paradise that's possible if we can unify and all get on the same page and work together and all that sort of stuff. And that's that's the goal here. Um, you know, some perfect future state of paradise, maybe, something like that. All right, so the existence of God and the universe in Baha'i religion are considered to be eternal. No beginning, no end. That's true for God, and it's true for the universe. I just need to point out here that to say that it's true of God and of the universe is sort of like saying God and the universe are the same thing, right? So if they're both eternal and you're saying, well, you know, God's eternal and so is the universe, this idea, this characteristic, this quality of being eternal, um, nothing has that quality. Nothing has that quality. So if you want to give it, if you want to apply that quality to God and the universe, to me, that's that's saying that God and the universe are the same thing. That's what Spinoza said. That's what I've said a million times. You know, that's what the pantheists say and the and the panpsychists say. Um, that's what they're saying in Baha'i, seemingly. And it's a very mystical thing to say, to recognize that the cosmos, the material cosmos, and God are something like the same thing, or something that you can't do, you can't separate them from one another. Something like that. And if you don't know this, I'll mention that there is a holy place um, for the Baha'i religion. It's called the Shrine of the Bab, and it's in Israel. It's in Haifa. It's in Israel, which I think that I thought that was interesting. You know, you've got a—I mean, again, I know Jerusalem is holy, but we're not, we're not talking about Jerusalem. We're talking about Haifa. So if you're a Muslim, and the Bab was a Muslim, um, Jerusalem is a holy place for Muslims. Um, that's where the—that's where the—you know—the um, Dome of the Rock is. Mecca is a holy place. That's where the Kaaba is. But the Baha'i religion chose to put their holiest building in Israel. I, I, you know, I think that's interesting. I don't know why, but I just wanted to point it out. So you can look it up. It's called the Shrine of the Bab. That's where his body is, by the way. All right, so I want to tell you about the Bab a little bit. Because remember, the Bab is the guy that showed up on the scene in the 1800s saying, a prophet is coming, a prophet is coming. But I haven't told you anything about him yet, so let's let's get into it. So the Bab was a Muslim, a Shia Muslim. He was a merchant. He began preaching in about 1844, 
And he was saying, look, I've got a new revelation from God, and it's coming. So the Bab's name was um, Saeed Ali Muhammad. That was his name, but again, goes by the title Bab. Um, and then when he, when he finally got his first convert, that's when he started using that, that title, the Bab. And it means the gate, right? The gate. The gate to what? Um, so the, the Bab is the gate. Um, and it's, it, it, the wiki says that it refers to a claim that the Bab makes later on, um, that he is the Mahdi, M-A-H-D-I. So I have to explain to you that Mahdi is a word that comes from Islam, um, but it's something like Messiah, or, uh, you know, I don't know if it's, I don't know if you would, it's something like Messiah. Uh, it's a figure in the, in Islamic um in the Quran, it's a figure that is supposed to be there um, at the end of time, at the end of days. The Mahdi will come and he will return with Jesus, according to Islam. So the Bab is saying he, at some point, is saying he is the Mahdi. So he's he's sort of this messianic figure as well. And and you know what he what his message is is the coming of Baha'u'llah. So we're going to talk about that. Here's the thing, though. You've got this guy. He's a merchant. I don't know what he was selling, but he's just a regular working class dude. And all of a sudden, he's saying he's the Mahdi. You know, he's like this super important figure in in the Islamic end times. And he's bringing a new message from God and a new prophet is coming. Like, who's saying this? The the guy that sells, you know, whatever, whatever he sells. I don't know. But it's just like the same the same thing that, that they would say about Jesus. Like, who, the, the son of the carpenter? This is the guy you're saying is the son of God? Uh, that's the kind of thing you see with the Bab. So he was rejected by the Islamic clergy in Iran entirely. And he was persecuted publicly the entire time. He was called a heretic, you know, um, you know, to be accused of heresy in the Islamic world is not a little thing. I mean, it is not a little thing. That's what happened to him. Um, so he ended up he ended up being killed uh, by public execution in 1850. So you've got a working class regular guy, starts making these outrageous claims. The religious authority tells him he's full of crap and has him killed. This is a guy that calls himself basically the Messiah. And I have to point out, what I, the, what I just described, you could, you could say was the story of Jesus, right? He was a carpenter, son of a carpenter. You know, he's just a regular guy, working class guy, suddenly, suddenly comes out as the Messiah and gets publicly persecuted and killed as a martyr. That's what happened to the Bab. That's what happened to Jesus. So I want to make that connection with you. It's important to understand that Bab is a martyr because he was killed publicly by the government. You know, that's what happened to Jesus. There are people who argue that the Christian movement had legs because Jesus was a martyr. Because, because all the regular people standing around seeing what's happened sees a man willing to die for what he believes and what he says he believes is some crazy shit now how do you convince somebody to believe crazy shit if you're willing to die for it that makes a statement uh, that's what that's what happened with Jesus that's part of the reason why Christianity was so powerful and and as a movement grew so dramatically over the first three four hundred years of, of its history because you have this character who was a martyr for the cause 
All right, so there's another another um, connection to Jesus, and or at least to the early Christians, and that is that the Bab, what did, you know, what did he write? So he wrote letters. He calls them epistles, right? He wrote letters, just like Paul wrote letters. And he sent them to different people all over the world, just like Paul did in Christianity and spreading the word. So that's what I'd like to read to you now. What did the Bab have to say? Now, I want you to pay attention. I, I've, I didn't read all of it. I read a lot of it, and I selected stuff that I want to bring to you. Um, so this is obviously not everything, but just pay attention to the way this guy speaks about God and about himself. Also pay attention to how difficult it is sometimes to find out uh, whether this guy is talking about himself or the prophet that's coming or God. It's sometimes hard to tell if it's like first person or not. And that's important. And I, I just pay attention, see if you can, if you can uh, pick up on it. So the first two things the Bab writes, they're called tablets, which I think is funny. I really don't, Imagine they were carved in stone, but maybe they were. They're called tablets, and it kind of brings to mind like the Ten Commandments. They were tablets, right? It kind of brings that to mind. And this tablet is addressed to him who will be made manifest. So here you have a letter. It's written to somebody, unnamed. He who will be made manifest. Now remember, according to the Bab, the people that are made manifest are manifestations of God, and those are the messengers, so he who will be made manifest is the next messenger that's going to come, who will be God on earth. And it starts off like this. He is the one who holdeth in his grasp the mighty kingdom of all created things, and unto him shall all return. He is the one who revealeth whatsoever he willeth, and by his injunction, be thou, all things have come into being. Okay, well, it sounds a lot, a, lot, a lot like the Bible. It sounds a lot like the Quran, even. Very similar language. You know, uh, he is the one who holdeth in his grasp the mighty kingdom of all created things. I mean, you could, you could hear somebody talk about God that way. That, that, that makes sense. Um, he is the one who reveals everything by his injunction. He says, be thou, which just means, you know, exist. All things have come into existence, right? So it seems like he's talking about God uh, in a way that corresponds to the way the, the Bible does. All right, the next bit says, Every manifestation is but a revelation of thine own self, with each of whom we have truly appeared, and we bow down in adoration before thee. Okay, so a couple things. Every manifestation, he's talking now about the prophets. He says, Every manifestation is but a revelation of thine own self. So every prophet is a revelation of God. Every prophet is something like God on earth. And then he says, with each of whom we have truly appeared. Now you notice he says, we have appeared. With each of whom we have appeared. He's putting himself in this category of, of manifestations of God. So it seems to me like the Bab believes, even though he's not the prophet that's been promised, somebody else is, he's talking about himself as one of the manifestations of God that, that is God on earth. This is how he's talking about himself, and I want to point that out, even in the earliest letters. When he says, with each of whom we have truly appeared, and we bow down in adoration before thee. Who is we? We are all of the prophets who have ever come, who have been manifestations of God on earth. Interesting. And again, it's, the interesting thing about this religion is that they do not limit these prophets to any one religion. Amazing. All right, here we go. 
He says, I have testified to thy oneness through thine own self before the dwellers of heaven and earth. Okay, so I want to point out, the oneness comes up. Now, it's not at all unusual for these religions to talk about God as one. And the reason is that they, they want to combat the idea that God is many that existed in the world at the time. What I'm talking about is polytheism. I'm talking about people who worshipped many gods, people who believed that, that there were, you know, um, Tiamat and Apsu and Baal and, you know, Moloch and all these different gods that existed at that time or Zeus and Kronos and Rhea and Anubis and all these different gods that exist in all these different religions. That's what the oneness of God that you hear about in the Old Testament is fighting against. You know, thou shalt take no other gods before me. That's what they're fighting against. They're fighting against polytheism. And it's funny because when we're talking about this like series of prophets that all kind of bring different messages or, you know, reinforce the messages or correct the messages or whatever it is that they're doing. One of the things that I thought when I was a kid learning about world religions for the first time was that was that Muhammad showed up at a time when Christians existed, obviously. Jews existed, obviously. They believed in one God. But all of the rest of the Middle East and, you know, Europe, for that matter, and Asia, for that matter, the rest of the world, for that matter, um, didn't. They worshipped many gods. And I had this idea that, that what Muhammad was emphasizing the most was the oneness of God. So basically what you end up with, as you can imagine, a place in the Middle East where Muhammad arises, surrounded by people who worship all these other gods. And there's a story about this in, in Islam, uh, where the Kaaba, which is one of the holiest shrines of Islam today, used to be a pagan temple. And Muhammad goes there, and all of these god, uh, like idols, statues, are filling this holy temple. And he goes in and he, he wrecks the place. He throws down all of the, of the uh, idols and breaks them into pieces except for the statue of the Virgin Mary. He leaves that, that one alone, but he destroys all the others. And um, so, so you can see really clearly that what Muhammad represented in terms of, if you look at it in terms of the development of religion in the world, he represented the force in, in the heart of basically the polytheism, um, I mean, where polytheism originated, right? close enough to places like the Indus Valley in India and places like the Tigris-Euphrates Valley in Mesopotamia where civilization and religion was born for the most part. You've got a guy who shows up there that says, hey, all these different gods you're worshiping, knock it off. Knock it off. All those gods really are just one. Don't you know that? Haven't you figured that out yet? And so it seems like the purpose that Muhammad served in his ministry, if you want to call it that, is to is to correct the misconception of the people in that part of the world who worshiped more than one God. He's like, look, this is what I'm here to fix. You, gotta, you guys have to start worshiping the only God that exists, the one God. Now, when I look at this quote and I see, um, and I see the oneness, you know, the, that word showing up, um, it, it's clear to me that from the Muslim perspective, that's part of it. Part of it is recognizing the oneness of God as a counterpoint to the people that worship many gods. But I want to point out that this, this word oneness is a strange word to use. 
Um, in the Bible, it says, you know, thou shalt take no other gods before me. It doesn't say God is one, you know, God is a oneness. It doesn't use that language. Where you do see that language is in mystic intuition. You do see that language from mystical people. You, you, you hear that from hippies. You hear that from, you know, from people who've had mystic experience, who've been one with the universe. This is, the, this is where you see the language like oneness showing up. And I want to point it out, we're seeing that here. I have testified to thy oneness through thine own self. Other thing I want to point out is you've seen twice where he says through thine own self. And that, that language happens a lot. And it's interesting because it's like what the Bab is saying here is what I did, I did through you. Or maybe I did as you. Remember, he's a messenger who's supposed to be God, a manifestation of God on earth. So the Bab is God on earth. And when he says... I testified to your oneness through thine own self. I think that's what he's talking about here. He's saying, I was God on earth speaking the words of God to humanity. Something like that. And it goes on, it says, Thou art indeed the indescribable, the inaccessible, the immeasurably glorified. Thou and thou alone art the Lord of might, the eternal one, the ancient of days. As to those who have put the kindred of Ali to death... Ere long they shall realize to what depths of perdition they have descended. All right, so I want to take a second here. That last one, I want to just put a pin in that because that's really important. This, this bit where he describes God as indescribable, inaccessible, and immeasurably glorified. Those are not ordinary descriptors. I mean, you see, you see descriptors in the Bible and the Quran and, and, you know, you see them and they'll say, you know, almighty and, you know, things that sound like eternal, omniscient, things like that. But to call them inaccessible, um, indescribable, those are more mystical words. So I want to point that out. It's like God is something that's not definable exactly. It's not something that you can understand. It's something that you can become but you cannot understand. It's not in the realm of understanding. God is immortal, right? Eternal. That's not something we can understand. It's not like anything in the world. But to call them indescribable and accessible, to me, those are things that, that seem more mystical. They don't seem typical. All right, now here's where I want to start pointing out some shit. This last bit of the first tablet, remember... Tablet addressed to he who, who will be made manifest. This is like him announcing the prophet who's coming. And how does, how does he end this, you know, important, this important epistle? He says, as to those who have put the kindred of Ali to death. Now, I don't know because Ali is such a common name uh, in the Muslim world, what he's referring to. But I want to point out that the Bab's actual name is Ali. And I think he's referring to himself. Because remember, he's being persecuted. The government, you know, everybody is calling him a heretic and going after him and trying to throw him in jail. And he says at the end of this first tablet that's introducing, you know, the promise that of this prophet to come, he says, as to those who have put the kindred of Ali to death, so they were killing members of his family, he says, ere long they shall realize to what depths of perdition they have descended. So he's saying that those people who are persecuting me and my family, they don't know they don't know what they're doing, right? It reminds me of what Jesus said when he was crucified, <laughs> you know? They know not what they do. That's what Jesus said. Forgive them, Lord. They know not what they do. This is kind of the spin that the Bab is putting on the end of this tablet. That brings me to tablet number two. 
It's the second tablet addressed to him who will be made manifest. So this is like, oh yeah, P.S. I got another, <laughs> I got more, I got more to say on this. All right. He, this one opens like this. It says, this is a letter from God, the help in peril, the self subsisting. So I just want to stop there and say, the Bab has addressed this letter. The opening line, this is a letter from God. Okay. Well, now it's really hard to, to deny the Bab is calling himself God. The Bab has written the letter. I don't care if what he's saying is that the inspiration is flowing through me, coming from God. He's, he's saying, look, who's the guy holding the pen here, Bab? And he writes, this is a letter from God. Okay, so clear, fine, fine, fair enough. Now he describes God as the help and peril and the self-subsisting, the thing that, you know, maintains its own existence. The only thing that can do that forever, that's God. And then it goes like this, O people of the Bayan, and these are people that, again, the, the faithful, the, the, the Baha'i religion, people of the Bayan, we entered the school of God when we were slumbering on your couches and persuade and persuade perused the tablet when you were fast asleep. By the righteousness of God, the true one, we had read it before it was revealed, and you were utterly unaware. Indeed, our knowledge had encompassed the book when ye were yet unborn. Okay. You have to see how absolutely mystical that is. What he's saying here is the people who are believers in, in Baha'i religion and what the Bab is saying He's saying that those people knew what he's saying in these tablets while they were sleeping, right? It's like something that they knew that was revealed to them in their soul, in their consciousness, before it was ever revealed to them by words. He says, by the righteousness of God, we had read it before it was revealed. Uh, We were utterly unaware. So the knowledge of the promise of, of the prophets to come, he's saying that this is something that we all know, or the faithful already know, that it was revealed to us in our sleep, like like from our unconscious somehow. It's something that we know unconsciously. So you've got this interesting connection now to slumbering and dreaming, which brings in this idea of consciousness to the picture. It's very mystical to do that. And I, 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 I like that, you know? And he says, indeed, our knowledge had encompassed the book when ye were yet unborn. So I don't know what book he's referring to there, but when you see somebody who's a Muslim who says the book, you know, um, it, it, you know, you might interpret that to mean the Quran. You might interpret that to mean the knowledge, the knowledge of God, or of all all of the messages that have been revealed, you know, something like that. But that the faithful knew knew that they know that the will of God even before we were born. It's very mystical, right? All right, so the next letter I want to read is called Tablet to the First Letter of the Living. So the Bab wrote this, and it goes like this. This is an epistle from the letter Tha, to him who is the first believer. Bear thou witness that verily he is I, myself, the sovereign, the omnipotent. He is the one who ordaineth life and death, and unto him shall all return. Indeed, there is none other God but him. All right, so to hear somebody say that there's no other God but God, it's a very, you know, Muslim-sounding thing to say, uh, or even, or even you know, Jewish thing to say, no, no other God but God. Uh, it it kind of rings that bell. Nothing unusual there. But here's where I want to bring your attention. The very first letter, uh, second sentence, where it says, Bear thou witness that verily he is I. 
myself the sovereign, the omnipotent. So here you have the Bab saying, notice he is I, the omnipotent, the sovereign. That's God. He's saying, notice that I am God. There's no two ways about it. Then he says, he is the one that ordaineth all life and death, and everybody returns to him. And he says, indeed, there is no other God but him. So for somebody that says, he is I, and then says, there's no other God but him, that's somebody who's saying, there's no other God but me, okay? I don't know how to take it exactly. So that's why I'm asking you to, I'm asking you to consider it. When, when he says this, is it arrogant? Is it... Is it, is it braggish? Um, is, it, is it like the ramblings of a crazy man to say, I am God, pay attention, notice, I am God? Um, or is there something more subtle here that's harder to pick up on? Is he saying like, you know, the prophet is the manifestation of God on earth and there's no other God but him? Um, you can see that. You can interpret that to say there's no, no other God but me, but there's also this complication of there being all of these prophets across time. It's not just the Bab, right? It's not just the Bab who's God. It's all of these prophets, and, and it begs the question, why just the prophets? So if it's, not, if it's not just the Bab that's God, but all the prophets, why is it just them? You know, might it be all of us that are God? You know, that's the next step in the mystic intuition that the Bab never seems to take. And so that's something I'm kind of critical of, and I'm pointing it out to you. All right, this goes on. He says, all matters must be referred to the book of God. I am indeed the first to believe in God and in his signs. I am the one who divulgeth and proclaimeth the truth. And I have been invested with every excellent title of God, the mighty, the incomparable, Verily, I have attained the day of the first manifestation, and by the bidding of the Lord and as a token of his grace, I shall attain the day of the latter manifestation. Okay, so this is interesting. To say all matters must be referred to the book of God is, you know, not an unusual thing to say. It's saying that the word of God or the message of, of God is sort of the end-all, be-all of um <sighs> I mean, of any answer, I suppose, that you might need. Um, and then he says, um, I am the one who divulges truth, who divulges truth. And then he says, I have been invested with every excellent title of God, of the mighty, the incomparable. So he's saying, I, as the prophet, have been given kind of the privileges of God. I've been given the titles of God. Like, that's an interesting thing to say. It's like a way of saying, I'm not, ex I'm not the same as God, but I'm the closest thing there's, there is. Something like that. And I, it, it, does it come across to you as arrogant and braggy? Does it come across to you as something that might come out of the mouth of like a David Koresh, you know, who's going to pretend to be Jesus and fuck your wife, while you're, you know, and everyone's wife while you're not looking? Does it, does it sound like that kind of a guy? Or does it sound like somebody who's, who's genuinely trying to share this message that he genuinely believes came from, from God? I mean, how does it sound to you? I, I wonder. Because it sort of sounds a little fucking weird to me when I read this. It's, I'm going to keep going. It's interesting. It's interesting. And it gets even more interesting in a minute. So let me just keep, let me just keep going here. Oh, oh, and before I do, this last bit where he says, I have attained the day of the first manifestation. And he's like, God willing, I'll attain the day of the second. What he says here is, 
you know, I was here when I, I was here when I was manifest. Like I am, I am the manifestation of God. That's the first manifestation. He's like, I was here then. And I'm hoping I'll be here to see the, the prophet who I've, who I've foretold. That's the, the, you know, the second, the latter manifestation. Then he goes on, he says, I render thanks and yield praise unto God for having been chosen by him as the exponent of his cause in bygone days and in the days to come. So again, he said, you know, I'm thanking God for having been, cho- been chosen to be his, be, to be his manifestation. Um, the, the exponent of his cause. Now he, he says in bygone days and in the days to come. Now notice that's just like the way Jesus was talking when he was promising the comforter. And he says that the prophet who's going to come will be me coming again, right? This is what the Bab says when he says, um, when he says that he is the one that was chosen by God to be the, pro- to be the prophet in bygone days, right? Even, even, even in the, in the ancient, ancient times when the prophets were other prophets, that was me then. And the prophets that are going to come in the future, in the, in the days to come, that's going to be me then too. Just like Jesus was saying, the comforter who's coming, that's going to be me again. So you see that, you see that here. And I think that's interesting. And then he closes, O people of the Bayan, those who embrace the truth must turn unto me as, or, as ordained in the book and divine guidance will be vouchsafed to whoever attaineth my presence. Okay. So how this thing is ending up, he says, those who embrace the truth must turn to me. Okay? And those who do will be vouchsafed to whoever attaineth my presence. So there's like an order here that if you believe in the truth, you have to believe in the Bab. And if you come to the Bab, if you attain his presence, that, that you'll be blessed, you know? And it, and that reminds me of like any kind of religious person. It kind of reminds me of a, like these Indian gurus, um, many of whom are, and I mean no disrespect here, but I just mean it's a poor, it's a it's a poor a poor part of the world. People have to get by in w- whatever way they can, and there's some hucksterism that goes into some of these gurus. They're basically people who go around um, begging for money and 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 uh, you know getting money from people for just being a guru, you know, for just being a holy man who, who, you know, is a monk like that. That's something that you get, that you can get money for, for being this, this holy person or for, for giving you a blessing or for something like that, teaching you a lesson. Um, and, and so, you know, when, when the Bab is saying, you know, whoever comes into my presence is going to, is going to be, be blessed. That's, that's kind of what comes to mind. It's like, I don't know if that's, if that's like, Jesus saying, "Let all the let all the little children come to me," and he was, you know, heal, healing people that are sick and bringing people back back from the dead. Like, is it that type of perspective, or is it the guru, the the guru type of perspective? The I'm gonna, I want I want people to have a reason to come see me. Why? So I can bless them, or so that I can manipulate them, so that I can get so that I can get money from them. So you know, I, I'm always suspicious when we're talking about religion or any or anything that's that's going to have a a way of a way of exerting power over other people. I'm always suspicious, and I guess that's what I'm toying with here. I don't know yet whether the Bab is on the up and up. So let's let's read the last letter that I want to read from the Bab. This is the epistle to Muhammad Shah. It was written in 1844. Um, and it goes like this. The substance wherewith God hath created me 
is not the clay out of which others have been formed. He hath conferred upon me that which the worldly wise can never comprehend, nor the faithful discover. I am one of the sustaining pillars of the primal word of God. Whosoever hath recognized me hath known all that is true and right. And what he means there at the end, whoever hath recognized me hath known all that is true and right, he's saying recognize me as the prophet, as the manifestation of God. Anyone who recognizes the Bab to be God knows everything that's true and right. So that to me rubs me the wrong way. It makes me it makes me reluctant. It makes me re- repel a little bit. And then I have to ask myself that 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 description really is not that different from Jesus's life and ministry, you know. And for some reason I don't I don't take that as critically, right? Maybe because I was raised in that faith, it doesn't seem as strange to me, but I'm skeptical. So I'm pointing that out. I'm skeptical here. Especially if we go back to this first bit. He says the substance that God created me with is not the clay that he created everyone else from. He's like, I was made special. He said, he hath conferred upon me that which the worldly wise can never comprehend. God has given the Bab what the smartest people in the world can never understand, nor the faithful ever discover. So I've got something that even if you've got the greatest intellect on, on you know, the planet, you can never understand. And even if you're the most faithful soul on the planet, you can never understand. That's what I've got from God, right? And then he says, I am one of the sustaining pillars of the primal word of God. I think what he means here when he says, I'm one of the sustaining pillars, is he's saying, I'm one of the prophets. I'm one of the manifestations of God. It's not just me. There are others. And then he says the primal word of God, which is interesting, because the word of God uh, that's something that in Greek we call we call logos, and there's a lot has been made about that, and I've made a lot about that when we read the book of Genesis and when we read the Gospel of John about what that means, about what the word means. Um, Jordan Peterson is is um, apt to say that the logos is something that represents consciousness, something like that. Um, the logos is what Jesus was supposed to have been a manifestation of, and this is what the Bab says he is one of the manifestations of, the primal word. The primal means the thing that was there in the beginning. So he's he's connecting it just like John did in the, in the Gospel of John to the book of Genesis, to the spirit of God that was on the face of the waters. That thing is what is embodied by these prophets that have come, including the Bab. Um, to say that he wasn't made out of the same substance as everyone else is to say that he's he's God and you're not. The prophets are, and you're not. And, and I guess that is the crux of my objection to, to Baha'i, is I feel like the, the mystic message that you get if you, if, you, if you seek after it is three-quarters of the way for what the, what the Bab is saying roundabout. But the Bab has not been able to get over his own position to extend this godhood to everyone, to recognize it in everyone. He's saying, no. You have to recognize it in me, and if you do, that's everything that's right and true. But he doesn't recognize it in anyone but himself and the prophet to come after him. And I think that's a mistake. I think that is, I don't know if it's an intentional mistake, but I think it is um, an interpretation of the, of the mystic experience that is wrong, it doesn't strike me as it doesn't strike me as in accord with my own mystic experience. 
That's that's where I'm going to draw the line with the bab. I think when you when he says you have to recognize God in me, that with, without taking that next step and saying, you know, I hope I turn my eyes to the to the people, to the masses, and see myself in them as well. That you've not quite got it all, Mister Bab. You're not quite got it all. All right, so let me continue. He says, I swear by the righteousness of thy Lord. Were a man to rear in this world as many edifices as possible, and worship God through every virtuous deed, and and uh, were he to bear in his heart a trace of malice towards me, all his deeds would be reduced to naught, and he would be deprived of the glances of God's favor, become the object of his wrath, and assuredly perish. For God hath ordained that all the good things which lie in the treasury of his knowledge shall be attained through obedience unto me. So you see what I mean. By the time we get to this letter, he's no longer saying by obedience unto God. He's saying through obedience unto me. And again, I don't know if I'm being unfair. In this language, when he says me, is he referring to God or is he referring to himself? If he's referring to himself, then I'm, I'm, I'm starting to have some real objections to this guy. If he's talking about God, I have less objections to this. But it's not clear. However, if we go back up to the, uh, the rest of this passage again, you can see that the interpretation is not, doesn't seem to be the one I'd like it to be. Because what he says here in the beginning is, if a man were to build temples to God everywhere, more than any other human being, and worship God everywhere, and do virtuous deeds everywhere, that if that perfect man, for lack of a better word, if that perfect man bore in his heart a trace of malice towards the Bab, now remember, he says towards me, and I here I don't know if does he mean towards God or towards the Bab, but assuming he means what it seems like he means, towards the Bab, that all of his deeds would be reduced to nothing. He would be deprived of even the glance of God's favor. In fact, God would bring his wrath upon him and he would surely perish. Do you see what I'm saying here? The Bab is saying, even if you were the perfect man, if you don't recognize me for God, and you have any ill will in your heart towards me specifically, not only will you not have God's favor, he will destroy you. Is that a unifying message? Does it sound like a unifying message to you? For a religion that wants to unify religion and God and humanity, does that sound like a unifying message to you? Me either. All right, let me keep going. He says, I behold all those who cherish my love and follow my behest, abiding within the mansions of paradise, and the entire company of mine adversaries consigned to the lowest depths of hellfire. So now he's promising, like, like any good politician, that anybody who believes his message and follows him will abide in mansions in paradise. You're going to live in mansions in paradise. On the other hand, if you're one of those assholes who don't agree with me, you're going to be consigned to the lowest depths of hell. Hmm. Now, does that start... Again, if if this is phrased like... If this is phrased like God, is it God or is it the Bab, right? If you follow God, will you, will you be in heaven? And if you, and if you don't, you, will you be in hell? That's not an unusual thing to hear in any you know, uh, any of the other religions that are related. But 
to say it in terms of the Bab himself, the prophet, if you, if you follow the prophet or if you don't, then your reward will be heaven or hell. It seems like that he's, he's gone too far. He's breached a step too far. And it has to do with separating himself from the rest of humanity or, from the, or even from the follower, his followers. And then he says, I am the primal point from which have been generated all created things. I am the countenance of God whose splendor can never be obscured, the light of God whose, whose radiance can never fade. So what a thing to say about yourself. Tooting your own horn, I think, is putting it lightly. I am the primal point. He talked about the primal word of God. That's the thing that you might call the Holy Ghost if you're a Christian. He says, that's what I am. And that's the thing that generates all things. Now, there's a way, you know, like in a, in a Petersonian kind of way, where you can, you can write this same sentence, and I agree with it. But I'm not sure that this is what the Bab's intending. If you say, I am the primal point, and what you, by, by that what you mean is, I am the Logos. I am consciousness. And consciousness is the thing that has created all things. Then, I am, then I'm on board. And you can call consciousness God, and I'm still on board. But he's saying, the Bab is the primal point. Not the Logos, not consciousness, not the thing that you see all around you, but just the thing you see resting in the bab. Remember, he wasn't created from, from the dust of the ground like us. He was created from something special. That's why he's the primal point. Then he says, now you, you, might, you might still wonder when he says, I am the primal point, is he talking about God or himself? But then he goes on and says, I am the countenance of God whose splendor can never be obscured. So if, he, if I am the primal point, that's, that's the bab. Because now we're talking about I as well and bringing in God to the conversation. So if I and God are in this conversation, we're, we're, you know, we're two separate things seemingly. So it's confusing. All right, then he goes on. He says, O people of the Bayan, if ye believe in him whom God shall make manifest, to your own behoof do you believe. He hath been and ever will remain independent of all men. For instance, were ye to place unnumbered mirrors before the sun, they would all reflect the sun and produce impressions thereof, whereas the sun is in itself wholly independent of the existence of the mirrors and of the suns which they reproduce. Such are the bounds of the contingent beings in their relation to the manifestations of the eternal being. All right, so there's a lot there, but let me put this in, let me put this in simple words. When he says in the beginning... He says, um, he hath been and ever will remain independent of all men. That's, that's the manifestation of God. He's independent of all other men. Remember, he was made from a different substance of all other men, right? Then he uses an analogy. He says, if you place a bunch of mirrors in, you know, in, in relation to the sun, that what you would see is a bunch of things that look like the sun, that seem to be like the sun but aren't the sun. And the analogy is, all of the other men in the world are the reflections of the sun. And the Bab is the sun. He is the real thing. And, you, and all the other men just look like the Bab, but aren't the Bab. You understand? It's like, yeah, the Bab's a man, and you're a man, but you're not like the Bab. He's made from something that you're not made from. You know, he's, he's the manifestation of God, and you are not. He is the actual sun. You are just the reflection. So, so I think it's interesting because this really does to me 
solidify this error that he's making himself distinct and different from all other human beings. Um, so he's, he's the thing that's, that's God or that's like God or that's from God or that's made from the same stuff as God, something like that, just like all the other prophets are. But you're not. None, nobody else is. And I think that's completely wrong. It's completely opposite of what mystic intuition tells you. And here's what makes it even more interesting to me is this analogy that's used about mirrors. Because this analogy shows up in mystic intuition all of the time. And the message is, well, we've talked about it in lots of ways on the podcast already, but it's something like what Hermes Trismegistus said. Um, he said, as above, so below. What God is like, that's what, that's what the cosmos is like. What the heavens are like is what the earth is like. What God is like is what a man is like. As above, so below. And you get this fractal picture. And that's the same thing you're seeing with mirrors. With this unnumbered mirrors, you get this fractal reflection of the sun, an infinite number of, of images of the sun. And all of these things, these symbols and, and um, um, archetypes and, and things that appear in mystic intuition, they represent, I think, something like self-consciousness. The mirror... Um, and I, and I, I've told you guys this before, but it's been a long time. Is that, that one of the things that happened to me when I had a mystic experience was the idea that I was searching for, I was searching to understand what, what God is. I was searching and searching and searching and searching and searching and didn't know what I was, I didn't know exactly what I was searching for or, or, um, it, you know, you sort of picture this like a dream I was having because that's kind of how it seems to me. And that when I finally got to the end of this, it was like building and building all this frustration and, and anticipation. And I finally pulled down this veil and what I saw was myself. It was like a mirror. So so the mirrors themselves, they show up all the time in, the, in mystic intuition as a way of trying to understand the mystery, whatever it is that, that you're experiencing. And again, in images and symbols, that's how, that's how the, this mystic experience, especially the kind that you hear t people talk about from a psychedelic experience or, you know, um, some sort of spiritual experience like, um, uh, you know, an ecstatic ritual of some kind. This is what they talk about. They talk about reflections and mirrors, that what God is like seems to be something like a reflection, or what the world is like seems to be like a, some, something like a reflection of what God is like, something like that. So you've got somebody who clearly has had an experience like this, or has talked to somebody who has, because why else would you use words like oneness and, and use this analogy of mirrors? All of this stuff comes from mystic intuition. I mean, there's no doubt in my mind. What, what I do want to, again, repeat is that where he goes with this is off the path. It's off the path. Um, and I think that that happens with religious leaders. Um, we could talk about that, but I, I don't know if this is exactly the best, the best place to do it. There are examples where religious leaders show up, and they seem to be on the right track, and they go astray. Um, I have... I have things I could say about that in, in terms of uh, Muhammad specifically, but I, I don't think this is the right place. Um, I just want to point that out. I think that the Bab may be one of those people that had good intentions, started in the right place, and kind of went, went wrong. All right, then he goes on, he says, he says, Verily, I am the one who is hailed in the mother book as the great announcement. The people have grievously differed over me. 
Whereas in truth, there is no difference between me and the Bab and God, the eternal truth. So there's no difference between the prophet of God, the manifestation of God, and God himself. And he, and he acknowledges people have, have grievously differed over me. He's, he's pointing out the fact that, uh, that the religious leaders and that the societies were persecuting him in his day. So it's like people have differed over me. But there's no, he says, the truth is there's no difference between me and God, between the Bab and God. And that's fine and good as far as I'm concerned. Nothing wrong with saying that until you say, it's only me. As soon as you make that statement, you, you have gone from the path of light immediately to the path of darkness, as far as I'm concerned. All right, and there's more. He goes on, he says, I am the mystic fane which the hand of omnipotence hath reared. I am the lamp which the finger of God hath lit with its niche and caused to shine with deathless splendor. <laughs> Man. I am the flame of the supernatural light that glowed upon Sinai in the gladsome spot and lay concealed in the midst of the burning bush. I mean, that is some poetic shit. I, I have goosebumps right now. That, that was awesome. I love that. But it's so braggish and anti-mystic. And even the word mystic is used here. I am the mystic fane which the hand of God hath, hath reared. And then he says, then he says, I am the lamp which the finger of God hath lit within its niche and caused to shine with deathless splendor. The flame that never burns out, the same thing that you saw in the burning bush, that, that was the voice of God speaking to Moses. He says, that's what I am. And there's no doubt about it. He says, I am the mystic fane, the bab, I, Right? If he said, we are the mystic fane, I would be on board, man. I am the mystic fane. Fuck off, Bab. All right. He goes on. He says, there is no paradise more wondrous for any soul than to be exposed to God's manifestation in his day, to hear his verses and believe in them. So there is no paradise more wondrous to any soul than to be exposed to God's manifestation in his day. What he's saying is, if you know me, and hear my voice and hear my teachings that there's nothing more, you know, there's, not, there's no greater blessing for anyone than to be in my presence and hear my voice and see the truth of my existence that I'm God on earth. He says to attain his presence, which is not but the presence of God. So if you're in front of the Bab, you're in front of God. <laughs> he says to sail upon the sea of the heavenly kingdom of his good pleasure and to partake of the choice fruits of the paradise of his divine oneness. And again, you see that divine oneness show up. That's, that's verbatim from mystic intuition. And it doesn't matter uh, what part of the world you, you, know, you go to, what time period you go to. You speak to somebody who's had a mystic experience, they're going to use words like his divine oneness. So you see that there. But it, to me, it just seems, it just seems, I keep saying braggish, but it's not the word. It's not sufficiently humble. And I guess I'm, I guess I, the reason I say that is because I'm comparing I'm comparing this person who claims to be God to Jesus who claimed to be God, and the humbleness in which Jesus spoke and the braggishness with which the Bab speaks could not be more different as far as I'm concerned. And that's I guess that's what rubs me the wrong way, part partly, because if the Bab is supposed to be part of the sequence of prophets that include Jesus, how could you show up and say something so different 
in such a different way than Jesus did. Um, so th- these are the things that, that concern me. All right, and then he goes on and says, All appearances and realities indicate the oneness of thine essence, and all evidences and signs reflect the truth that thou art God. So I just want to point out this is a very, very mystic thing to say. All appearances and realities indicate the oneness of thine essence. Okay, so what that means, to put it another way, is how things appear. That's your subjective experience of the world. That's, that's what your consciousness brings to your attention. All appearances and realities, right? So that's different. That's, that's not how things seem to be, appearances. It's how things are. That's the objective truth. That's the Terminator 2 substance behind your subjective experience, that potential that can become anything. That's God as far as I'm concerned. And he's saying that all appearances, that the cosmos and everything all around you, all of that indicates the oneness of the essence of God. Uh, Now, I, I don't have any objections to that statement. I think that the mystery of being, the things that you see all around you and experience all the time, that, that the, the mystery of your experience indicates the oneness of God. Like you can find it. You can find the truth of that statement by examining your experience. I believe that. And that's what he said. So I'm not, it's really hard for me, you know, because there's a way in which I like where this guy's going. I like where he's coming from. But what I'm seeing is a man that, again, came from humble origins, had this powerful experience that must have that must have caused him to say the kind of stuff he said publicly in a place that wasn't popular in the face of opposition to the point where he was killed for his beliefs right to say all of that and to get and to get that response um i mean you can see how frustrating that must have been and and it, you can see it in his letters you know, when he's saying things like, hey, if you, you know, if you're one of those people that disagrees with me, you're going straight to hell. Like, that's the kind of threat you make if you feel powerless and you are vengeful. And powerless and vengeful are not qualities I like in a prophet of God. Do you know what I mean? All right. So that's the Bab. That's the Bab. Now we're going to move on to uh, Baha'u'llah. So Baha'u'llah is the, is the prophet that the Bab foretold. He wrote many books, but... One of them, um, the Kitab, the Kitab e Akhdas, Akhdas, it's called the Most Holy Book. This is what I'm going to read for you today: excerpts from the Prophet who came that the Bab foretold, Baha'u'llah. Here we go. They whom God hath endued with insight will readily recognize that the precepts laid down by God constitute the highest means for the maintenance of order in the world and the security of its peoples. Now, what you're going to notice right away is that Baha'u'llah is not writing the same way the Bab was. The Bab was writing in a way that sounded like the Bible, and it kind of seems like it was on purpose, especially when you consider it was written in the 1800s, and you're, you're, you're seeing a whole bunch of words with if at the end, like you're trying to sound like the King James Version of the Bible that was written in, you know, in the Middle Ages or the Renaissance or something. I don't, can't quite remember. Um, it was clear to me the Bab is trying to sound like a holy book. Baha'u'llah doesn't really, doesn't really do that. But what he says here in the beginning is that the, that the messages that we've got from God, that those are the things, the things that we formalize in our religions, 
Those are the things that he says that constitute the highest means for the maintenance of order in the world and for the security of its people. And, you know, you could argue that. You could argue that. There's a lot of people who say, look, holy books are full of errors. They're written by human beings. They're flawed. They're the, they're the reason why we have all this infighting within groups and, you know, the Crusades and the Salem witch trials and, you know, on and on and on it goes. There are people that, that, uh, that would say that for sure. But you can look at it another way. You can just say, okay, well, let's just take the Ten Commandments, for instance. You know, those were supposedly handed down directly from God to human beings. And what do they say? Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. You know, honor thy mother and father. If we all did those things without fail, wouldn't that, wouldn't that be a means for the maintenance of order in the world and the security of its people? It, it would. Right? I don't think there's a soul that disagrees with much about the Ten Commandments, you know? I don't care what religion you belong to. So this is what Baha'u'llah is saying. Now, he's saying that the, the messages we get from God and our understandings of the will of God, this is the best tool we have for order and security in the world. So what Baha'u'llah's concern is right off the bat is about the maintenance of order in the world and the security of its peoples. That's an interesting thing for a religious prophet to say. Um, okay, he goes on. O people of the world, build ye houses of worship throughout the lands in the, in the name of him who is the Lord of all religions. So, he, so now he's saying, build houses of worship all over the place. And these houses of worship should be to the Lord of all religions. So now we, this is a way for us to try to unify all religions. O people of Baha, it is incumbent upon each of you to engage in some occupation such as a craft, a trade, or the like. We have exalted your engagement in such work to the rank of worship of the one true God. Waste not your hours in idleness and sloth, but occupy yourself with what will profit you and others. So that is a weird thing for a prophet to say. Listen to this, guys. He says that you should engage in work of some kind, a craft or an occupation. And if you do that work will be exalted to the rank of worship. It's like whatever you're doing, he said it, should, it shouldn't be idle. Your time shouldn't be idle. It's like what you should be doing is something that makes you profitable and others profitable. You should do work that benefits you in the world. And if you do that, consider that work to be worship of God. So that's interesting, and it's strange. It's unusual. You don't see that sort of thing in, in holy books. Because what it's saying is something like, it's, it's good to work towards social and economic prosperity. Right? Remember, when, remember, remember from the Bible when Jesus showed up and he started doing his ministry? What did he say to, to the would-be, would-be apostles? They're out there fishing. That's their, that's their job. What does Jesus say? Lay down your nets and follow me. So the message of Jesus was, don't, don't do work. Focus on, focus on spirituality. Focus on, you know, what's important. Focus on God. And, and here, Abba says, no. He says, you should have a craft. You should have a job. You should be working for profit for yourself and for others. You should be making the world better through your work. And if you do, you can consider that worship of God. And I think that's interesting. 
I think if you follow Jesus's words, in this case, you have a world full of monks and aesthetics, um, you know, living hand to mouth. And if you follow Baha'u'llah's advice here, maybe you have a, a world, uh, maybe, maybe you have a, a free market in the entire world and people are free to trade and, and to work as they see fit towards some sort of greater social and economic prosperity. And wouldn't that be good? And wouldn't that help the goals of this religion to bring people together and to stop people from fighting? If everybody was making money and being productive and, uh, you know, and, and wasn't in poverty, wouldn't that help, don't you think? Interesting. All right, and then he says, he says, to none is it permitted to seek absolution from another soul. Let repentance be between yourself and God. Okay, that's a hell of a thing for a religion to say, because what does that actually say? It says something like this. You can't go to a priest and get, and get absolution for your sins, right? He says, to none is it permitted to seek absolution from another soul. You're not, you're not allowed, right? If you're a Christian, you think you can go to a priest and get absolution. Um, the Baha'u'llah is saying, no, you can't. If you want repentance, let that be between yourself and God. What did we just do here, you guys? We just took the priest out of the middle position. It's not me to priest to God. It's me to God. Now, I agree with that. I like that idea. I don't think, I don't think it makes any lick of sense to have a, a go-between between you and your unconscious, between you and God, right? And this is what Baha'u'llah is saying. And what he's also saying is, there shouldn't be a priesthood. You shouldn't have these special people in the religion that have special authority over everybody else and, and are a go-between between you and access to God. And that's a dangerous thing for a religion to say. That's, that's something that the Catholics have been resistant to since the beginning, and, and the Jews as well. They don't want to lose the priesthood because, hey, it's a good life to be a priest, right? And they're powerful people. You can imagine... You can imagine politicians today. Imagine if we said today, you know what? I don't think Congress is like a good system so much anymore. I think, uh, you know, people have direct access to, um, to uh, you know, the, um, uh, to the judiciary and to the president. Now we're just going to, we're just going to vote through the internet and uh, we're going to, you know, we don't need, we don't need this go-between anymore. Can you imagine how upset and how panicked and how much fighting the political class in this country would go through if we if we said that they would object they would bring all of their power and authority to preserve their position no we can't get rid of congress if we can't get rid of congress it's it's unconstitutional it's the american way you know whatever whatever you know you you know what i mean so do you kind of see so far when we went from the bab to baha to bahaula how different it's not just how he's speaking, it's way more to the point of what we talked about in the, in the introduction. So the Bab is really focused on himself and the, and the prophet and the fact that there's another one coming, him and somebody else. And it didn't stop with Muhammad, and it didn't stop with Jesus, and it's going to continue forever. And, and here, Baha'u'llah is saying, well, here, here I am, the promised one, and what I'm saying is religion should be something that unifies us and brings us order and peace, something that brings us prosperity and brings us together. And we shouldn't need priests and we shouldn't need, you know, all these unnecessary complications. 
I mean, all that sounds pretty, pretty good to me. And then he goes on, he says, Read ye the tablets, that ye may know what hath been proposed in the books of God. Whoso layeth claim to a revelation direct from God, ere the expiration of a full thousand years, such a man is assuredly a lying imposter. Okay, this is interesting. This is one of those weird beliefs that the religion has that I don't quite understand why they have it and why it's so strictly interpreted. This is what they say. They say that God sends a prophet or he becomes manifest on on earth in regular intervals. By regular interval intervals they mean every thousand years. So let me say that again. The Baha'i religion believes that God becomes manifest on earth every thousand years. So the prophets that show up should be a thousand years apart. And if they aren't, that's how you know the prophet is not real. Not enough time has passed since the last one. So if he shows up in the middle of that time period and says, I'm God, bullshit on that, right? So it's interesting because there's some parallels to this in Christianity where, you know, um, where the Bible will say, you know, that, 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 uh, that a prophet will come, and this may, this may come from Revelation, I can't remember, that a prophet will come and pretend to be the, the return of Jesus and will be, will be uh, imposter. And that's what uh, Baha'u'llah is saying right here. But let me just let me just get into this a little bit because because listen, this guy's telling you to believe that every thousand years a prophet comes and that that's the, that that legitimizes the prophet. That's how you know that it's that he's the right guy because he he came at the right time. Like I'm already lifting up my eyebrow here. Like what? But it gets worse. It gets worse. All right, so the Bab and Baha'u'llah were, were, were Muslims. And Muhammad arrived 400 years after Jesus. Not 1,000, 400. Now, now, both Baha'i as a religion and Islam as a religion believe Muhammad and Jesus were legitimate prophets. They did not live 1,000 years apart. So that's kind of weird, Right? How about Jesus and Buddha? They, were, they lived 500 years apart, not 1,000 years apart, and yet Buddha is considered a, a prophet in this religion. How about Zoroaster? Zoroaster may have been about 1,000 years apart from Buddha, but the, but the dates are not clear. Could have been much less than that. But even worse, what about Baha'u'llah? Baha'u'llah himself was born two years after, excuse me, two years from the Bab. They were only only two years apart. Not a thousand, two. Even worse, Baha'u'llah was born two years before the Bab. So the prophet, Baha'u'llah, who claims to be the person that the Bab uh, was, was prophesying, had already been alive for two years before the Bab was even born. And you remember how the Bab addressed his letters? To he who will be made manifest... Baha'u'llah was already manifest, Bob. He was two years old when you were born. So this, to me, is a strange thing, man. It, it's like, if you're really going to put this thousand-year business, if you're really going to make this part of the religion, you just you just chop the feet right out from under yourself here because the math is not on your side, guys. 400 years between Muhammad and Jesus, 500 between Buddha and Zoroaster, maybe 1,000 between Zoroaster and Buddha, but, but again, between the Bob and... And Baha'u'llah only two years. 
So I think that's the Achilles, uh, the Achilles heel of the religion. Maybe if if they're going to make this the the uh, the you know the wall that they die on. All right, he goes on. Such is the instruction given you by him who holdeth the knowledge of things hidden, in a tablet which the eye of creation hath not seen, and which is revealed to none except his own self, the omnipotent protector of all worlds. So bewildered are they in the drunkenness of their evil desires, that they are powerless to recognize the Lord of all being, whose voice calleth aloud from every direction. There is none other God but me. Okay. Okay, so this actually provides a little bit of explanation about something that the Bob said a little earlier, um, where he says that um, there's secret hidden hidden knowledge in these tablets. He says that the eye of creation hath not seen, which is like saying God hasn't seen it. But then he says it's revealed to his uh, to none except his own self. So it's revealed by God only to God. But what he seems to mean by that is the manifestations of God that God sends to to being all of these prophets. So there's something that the prophets know that God himself doesn't know and the world and nobody in the world knows. There's some secret knowledge that's only available to these manifestations of God. Now there's there's part of that that I don't disagree with. In fact, I would put it something like this. I would say that that secret uh, is is available to everyone and it's the realization that Every, everyone is God, that your identity is the same as mine and everyone else's, that, that God is all there is, and that's what you are, that that's that secret knowledge. So if you can put it in a, in a perspective that says God has to be made manifest, God has to, has to come uh, to a material world and exist in the material cosmos as a human being or, or whatever, that, that God has to be manifest in order to understand that God and, and being are the same thing that what has been manifest is God. So do you have to be, you know, a material being to understand that? I mean, I think, I think you do. Um, it's the only, it's certainly the only way we understand anything is through our experience of being here, of being a, a material thing. So maybe there's not, maybe that's not so far fetched, but what, but where the disconnection for me happens is where, even even Baha'u'llah here is saying that that secret knowledge is only true of the prophets. So there's only a series of individuals that have been the manifestations of God that know they are God, rather than saying that everybody can, can come to the realization that they are God, which is what I believe the mystic intuition is really saying. That's why this is a sort of half-truth. But it's interesting here, the way he puts it, um, he also says... When he's talking about himself and in, in, in God, he says, protector of all worlds. Worlds with an S, plural. And it's interesting, right? Because this is a religion that's supposed to unify people and religion. And they don't seem to want to leave out anybody who might not be on this planet, let's say, right? Like life might exist elsewhere. And we want, we want to also include you in that, right? It's like God also has dominion over you and the, his prophets are, are, you know, in authority over you too, over there in Alpha Centauri or something. So protector of all worlds. 
And I think that's interesting. It's like they're extending this, this, this religion is going to unify not just humanity, but everything and every, everyone, wherever they might be in the cosmos. It's an interesting thing. All right, then it says, He who is the dawning place of God's cause hath no partner in the most great infallibility. He it is who is the kingdom of creation, is the manifestation of he, of he doeth whatever he willeth. God hath, hath reserved this distinction unto his own self and ordained for none a share in so sublime and transcendent a station. Okay, so this is one of those weird kind of contradictory things here where, I'll, put it, I'll have to put it this way, when he says he who is the dawning place of God's cause, he's talking about himself as the manifestation of God. He's talking about the prophet. He says that the prophet hath no partner in the most great infallibility. What does that mean? It means God is infallible, and so is the prophet, and nobody else. So he has no partner in the most great infallibility. There's nothing, no, nothing else like the prophet, right? He's infallible like God's infallible. That's a dangerous thing to say. Then it goes on. Um, it said, he is the manifestation of he doeth whatsoever he willeth, which is, just, which is just another way of saying he is a manifestation of God's will because God can do whatever he wants, whatever he wills. And that's what the prophet is, the manifestation of God's will. It's like the hand of God in, in, the, in the cosmos, in reality. Then he says, God hath reserved this distinction unto his own self and ordained for none a share in so sublime and transcendent a station. And that last sentence is saying, look, that this distinction is, is for God only, God alone. But at the same time, he, he says that, he's saying that it applies to him. It's like he has no partner other than God in his own infallibility. So there's this weird thing where it seems to be talking out of both sides of his mouth, where he wants to be able to be God, but he wants everyone else to not, right? He, wants, he doesn't want this message to be unclear, that what he's describing is specifically unique to him and not to anyone else. He is God and you are not. He is the prophet and you are not. All right, um... Okay, so this this other bit is interesting, and this this is another divergence from the Bab, but but this is interesting. So, the rest of this uh, that I'm going to read to you is it's kind of like a list of liberal social reforms that are presented like you have to imagine this guy's talking to mostly Muslims because he's in the Muslim world, so it's like he's presenting things that are contrary to orthodox Muslim culture. It's like what I was describing in the beginning when I said that some prophets are seen to be coming to correct an error. Like Muhammad, like I was describing before, Muhammad may have come to correct the error of polytheism. He, he, he comes to bring the message to his people all around him, worshiping all these gods. No, 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 you're doing it all wrong. There's only one God. Make that change. Um, these are the changes that I'm going to talk about next that Baha'u'llah seems to be bringing to the people and listen and pay attention like from the perspective of what it's like in the Muslim world today alright here we go it hath been laid down in the, in the bayan that marriage is dependent upon the consent of both parties desiring to establish love unity and harmony amidst our servants we have conditioned it once the couple's wish is known upon the permission of their parents 
lest enmity and rancor should arise amongst them. So that's interesting. you got somebody here saying, look, this is a new religion, this is a new message, and one of the things that's needed is for marriage to be a consensual sacrament. What does that mean? That means you can't sell off your daughters. There aren't arranged marriages anymore. That both husband and wife have to agree to it. Both the parents should be giving their blessing. And and if that happens, there won't be enmity and rancor arising between people. You're not going to steal away a wife or sell off a daughter. That's not going to happen anymore. He goes on. It hath been decreed by God that should any one of his servants intend to travel, he must must fix for his wife a time when he will return home. If there be good reason for delay, he must inform his wife and make the utmost endeavor to return to her. Should neither of these eventualities occur, it behooveth her to wait for a period of nine months, after which there is no impediment of her taking another husband. Interesting, right? So here you have, you have, well, you have permission for a woman to divorce and remarry without even the consent of her husband if conditions are met that represent basically being abandoned. And in the old days, that once you've, once you've made a marriage vow, it's permanent, right? In the eyes of God, forever. You've been joined forever. So if you left your, your family, your wife and your kids, and you were just doing whatever it is you were doing, you might have been able to do that for whatever, for business reasons, for, for spiritual reasons, for whatever. You might have been able to do that, um, you know, in the Islamic culture, and the wife has no recourse. And Baha'u'llah is saying, look, if that shit goes too far, that your wife can, can just marry somebody else. And you've done something unfair to her. So now there's this idea of women's rights in a way that you know you can see isn't isn't there in the same way, uh, especially in the 1800s when this was when this was being written in in the Islamic world. Next, should resentment or apathy arise between husband and wife, he is not to di- to divorce her, but to but to bide in patience throughout the course of one whole year that perchance the fragrance of affection may be renewed between them. If upon the completion of this period their love hath not returned, it is permissible for divorce to take place. So you see now we have permission for divorce, even in a situation like this. Next, it is forbidden you to trade in slaves, be they men or women. Okay, so no more slavery. Adorn yourself with the raiment of goodly deeds. So do good deeds, do good works. Let none contend with another. Let no soul slay another. This verily is that which was forbidden you in a book that hath lain concealed within the tabernacle of glory. What? Would ye kill him whom God hath quickened, whom he hath endowed with spirit through a breath from him? Grievous then would be your trespass before his throne. Okay, so this is great. He's saying you can't kill. He's not saying um, thou shalt not murder. He's saying you can't kill, period. You can't kill for war. You can't kill for, you know, uh, disciplinary, like, like, you know, punishment in prison. You can't kill at all. And his explanation for that is, what? Would you kill him whom God hath quickened? <laughs> he said, God who endows him with his, with his spirit through his breath, you're going to be the one to come and take that out of him? 
Like what God gave life to, you're going to steal from him? No, nobody. You can't kill. It's not allowed. That's revolutionary. Not in war, not in prison, nothing. What God gave breathed life into is sacred, and you don't have the authority to take it. All right. Next. Consort ye then with the followers of all religions, and proclaim ye the cause of your Lord, the most compassionate. This is the very crown of deeds, if ye be of them who understand. So, consort with the followers of all religions. And then you can see there's passages in the Quran specifically that would agree with that. And then there are passages in the Quran that are completely opposite to that. For instance, um, I, and I can't remember this verbatim, but there's uh, a passage that basically says if you, see a, if you see a Jew on the street, you should kill him. Like that's a completely contrary quote to many others that you see in the Quran that talk about uh, fellowship, even specifically among Jews. I mean, for those of you who don't know, uh, one of Muhammad's wives, uh, it may have been his first or his favorite wife, was a Jew. So, again, I'm not, I'm not steeped in it, but I, I do know that much. Um, so he's saying that people should consort with people from other religions. They should. You should have friends with them. You should, you should be married to them. You should do business with them. You know, that, that if you do that, he said, that, that's the, that that represents the compassion of God, that it is, it is the crown of deeds. It's the best thing you can do to bring friendship and unity between people of different religions. Then he says, God hath relieved you of the ordinance concerning the destruction of books. We have permitted you to read such sciences as are profitable unto you, not such as end in idle dis- disputation. Better is this for you if ye be of them that comprehend. Okay, so notice this. Uh, I don't know what he's referring to here specifically, if this is something from the Quran or not, but he's saying, I have relieved you of the ordinance about the destruction of books. So he's saying you don't have to destroy books. In fact, you have permission to read anything, uh, specifically sciences, that are profitable to you. So you know from any religious perspective, you could just think about the the prosecution, uh, per, or persecution rather, that the Catholic Church did with scientists in the, in the Middle Ages. Um, science and religion can be at odds. And what Baha'i is saying is um, that you shouldn't reject science. You should embrace it if it's profitable to you. So that is revolutionary. A religion that embraces science, that embraces free markets, that that is moving towards um, a peaceful and unified world that works together more than it ever has, that has that has compassion for each other in ways that it never had, that has goals in common that it's never had. Like this is, this is what we're talking about, a religion that embraces all of that, you know? So what Baha'u'llah is talking about, you know, apart from the, this, this, this tainted um, kind of misguided stuff we've been hearing from the Bab about himself and God, there's a lot here that's interesting and, and maybe valuable, you know? So I don't know what you think of that, but you got these series of what look like commandments in some sense. And when you look at what they're talking about, they're talking about liberal reform. It's like, you know, don't be so conservative that you that you can't read science. Don't be so conservative that your religion keeps you from, you know, from 
being profitable and, and benefiting yourself and, and your community. And, and, you know, uh, it keeps you from communicating and, and having relationships with people outside of your groups. And like all of this very liberal reform that's wrapped up in this religion, I have very little negative to say about that. I think that's, I think that's interesting. All right, so then, then there's some interesting bits here where Baha'u'llah actually, he actually gives messages to the leaders of the world. So there, I'm not going to read them, but there's these different passages where he's talking, he's talking about the rulers of Austria and the ruler of Berlin and Constantinople, and the ruler of the Americas and the republics therein. And he's like talking to the leaders of the world. It's, and it's interesting. And then what he says here is, None must contend with those who wield authority over the people. None must contend with those who wield authority over the people. That reminds me a lot of Jesus saying, render unto Caesar's that which is Caesar's, right? None must contend with those who wield authority over the people. Leave unto them that which is theirs and direct your attention to men's hearts. O leaders of religion, weigh not the book of God with such standards as sciences are uh, current among you. For the book itself is, is the unerring balance established among men. In this most perfect balance, whatsoever the peoples and kindreds of the, of the earth possess must be weighed, while the, measure, while the measure of its weight should be tested according to its own standard. Did ye but know it? Okay, so that's saying a lot, but the important thing here is, weigh not the book of God with such standards and sciences as are current among you. So he's saying a separation of religion and science. Right? Religion brings you religious truth, and science brings you scientific truths. And there's no reason that one should be preventing the other from doing either of those things. It's beautiful. And he says the measure of its weight should be tested according to his own standards. Science should be evaluated with scientific standards. And and prophecy and religion should be evaluated with religious standards. So I think that's really interesting. And you can see how it's, it's, it's an attempt to remove these barriers of these religions that are holding society down from progress, you might say. It's like, can we get rid of those things that are holding us down, you know, from, from a social perspective that would benefit human beings all over the world and, in a way that we'd all, all agree with? less violence, less division, you know, more compassion, more working together. Can we accomplish that? And as he says, we have decreed, O people, that the highest and last end of all learning be the recognition of him who is the object of all knowledge. And yet behold how ye have allowed your learning to shut you out as by a veil. So this is another statement about science. It's like people who are scientific um, do not typically allow room for God or religion. It's hokum. It's, it's, you know, it's not worth consideration. And what he's saying here is don't let that, uh, he, he says a couple things. He says basically the leaders of, of um, uh, political leaders and the leaders of religion should be separate in separate domains, shouldn't interfere with one another, and uh, that, um, that you shouldn't allow science to blind you to the truths of religion and you shouldn't allow religion to blind you to the truths of science. Beautiful. All right, and then there is some really interesting stuff about. You remember how? You remember how earlier we were talking about how this all got started, and it had to do with, it had to do with the Bob's disagreement and the uh, the guy that came before him, uh, their disagreement about end time stuff. 
in the in the Quran about the end of days and the resurrection and all that stuff. It was disagreement about it. So let, let's talk about this coming age uh, from the words of Baha'u'llah. It goes like this. We have appointed two signs for the coming of age of the human race. The first sign of the coming of age of humanity, referred to in the writings of Baha'u'llah, is the emergence of a science which is described as the divine philosophy, which will include the discovery of a radical approach to the transmutation of elements. This is an indication of the splendors of the future, stupendous expansion of knowledge. Okay. This is great. So, this is pie in the sky, guys. This is this is the paradise that uh, that this religion is going to, you know, potentially bring us to. He's saying potentially the emergence of a science that's described as a divine philosophy. So you can imagine if all of the if all of the religions have been sort of, you know, made to rec- reconcile with one with one another. There's peace between religions. We're all on board, um, and we don't allow religion to prevent the, pro- the progress of science or science to, to prevent the progress of religion and that everything's working together. Then what you really have is a science that's also kind of a religion or at least one that's in line with religion. And by that, in this context, I mean the mystic intuition. So a science that's in line with mystic intuition. What is, what is mystic intuition? It's the knowledge that everything is one. And what that oneness is, is something like God or consciousness. Take it as you will. Um, <laughs> the, it, what's interesting to me about that is that we already see signs of this. And I've talked about it before. It's called panpsychism. It's quantum physics. The cutting-edge quantum physics theory in that area that recognizes the oneness of consciousness in material reality. So we're seeing the kind of birth of that science, maybe, already. All right, next one it says, Concerning the second sign, Baha'u'llah, in his most holy book, has enjoined the selection of a single language and the adoption of a common script for all on earth to use, an injunction which, when carried out, would, would as he himself affirms in the book, be one of the signs of the coming of the age of the human race. Coming, coming age of the human race. So not only are we going to have this science that emerges, that unifies science and religion, and he says, he says provides a, a method for the transmutation of elements. And I have to, I forgot to stop on that, so let me back up. Does anybody know what that means, the transmutation of elements? you've heard that, it's probably from the, uh, the realm of alchemy. What were the alchemists doing? They were trying to transmutate base elements like lead and turn them into valuable things like gold by purifying them, taking something that's impure and making it perfect. And by doing that, they're going to they're have gold in the end. So, so he's saying that something like that is going to be made possible by this new science. <laughs> and that's the sign of the coming, one of the signs of the coming of the end of the new age. So we have that, this crazy new religion science, and we have the selection of a single language and script for the world. Now, I don't know if you know this, but there are already many proposed world languages. One of them, I think, was actually pushed pretty hard in the 70s um, that, that we, might, we might actually have a single language 
English is not far from it right now, by the way. Um, but we might have a single language and script for the entire world to be able to use to understand each other. And that will be a sign. Then he says, one of the signs of the maturity of the world is that no one will accept to bear the weight of kingship. Kingship will remain with none willing to bear alone its weight. That day will be the day whereon wisdom will be manifest among mankind. So notice what he's saying here is there won't, there won't anymore be any single leader who's comfortable being a king or a leader. So no dictators, no kings, no monarchs. And it doesn't exactly say no government. What it does say is kingship will remain with none willing to bear alone its weight. So you can imagine that the government that will happen, that will come about with this, you know, in time, will be something like a representative government or a democracy, not something with a single leader, but something with, a, with many leaders. Lastly, it says, the coming of age of the human race has been associated with the unification of the whole of mankind, the establishment of a world commonwealth, and an unprecedented stimulus to the intellectual, the moral, and spiritual life of the entire human race. All right, so, all right, so you can imagine. There's, just, there's some New World Order stuff here. Uh, there's lots. This is ripe for conspiracy theory. But you can imagine this religion is saying that when the end time comes and this promised new age is arrived, that what we will have is a single religion that unifies them all. Maybe it's this Baha'i religion that, that, you know, that we're talking about. Um, we're going to have a single language and a single writing. We're going to have a single world government. And we're going to have unprecedented growth in the intellectual and moral and spiritual lives of the entire human race. So by conquering, by conquering our base instincts, by, by avoiding all the fighting and death, by coming together in spiritual and material ways, um, and by benefiting from that, that this new age will come and that human beings will become something new as a result. That it's, again, there's going to be intellectual, moral, and spiritual development that's unprecedented. So whatever that means, we don't know. It's never happened before. That that's what this will unlock, some potential that the human race has that we've never seen. So what do you think of that, guys? What do you think of the Bob? What do you think of Baha'u'llah? I mean, I don't know. I don't know. My take is that it's good intended. My take is that it lines up in a lot of ways with classical liberalism, which I agree with. Um, it also borders on significant contradictions that I that I have trouble reconciling. Like where where individualism and where freedom uh, comes in to a one world government. Um, how the view of the individual from a religious perspective can factor into this one world government and one world religion scenario, whether it's practical or whether it's pie in the sky, um, whether the whether the Bab was um, a megalomaniac or whether he was a well-intended sp spiritual leader, um, whether Baha'u'llah, by the way, was the prophet the Bab the Bab had promised. You know, not just because he didn't come a thousand years after the Bab, but because he was born before the Bab. Because the Bab died before Baha'u'llah ever said, I'm the pro guy that the Bab promised. 
you know, it seems a little shady to me. However, the Baha'u'llah has a lot of practical things to say that are not arrogant the way the Bab was and do seem to be progress, you know, from the social perspective. It's like if we need 10 more commandments, could we use the ones that Baha'u'llah proposed? You know, in the Middle East in the 1800s, I think that's, I think that's right on. All right, so how do we bring this to a close? The best of intentions, a new direction for the stagnation of Islamic culture under modern dictatorial leadership, or the ramblings of a madman and an opportunist who took the ball and ran with it? Which do you think it was? What about the mystic leanings that we, that we saw that are continually contradicted or undermined in the scripture? Is the prophet, is, is the manifestation of God, is it, is it God himself or isn't it? Is the prophet God or isn't he? If he's an ordinary man in the manifestation of God, what about me? What about you? How are we different? There are worse things than inventing a faith, you know, make-believe or inspired, that states as its goal the spreading of love and unity between people to unite our languages, faith, culture, and goals so that we can work towards one future. To right those wrongs of the past that can be corrected, you know, oppression of women, religious and secular violence, and the rejection of science and technology, which will clear the way for progress, for sure. There is a danger here in how we define progress and who gets to decide how and if we can agree or compromise in order to synthesize a standard that we can all harmoniously agree with. You know, is it pie in the sky? This is kind of what that hinges on. Is it practical or is it, is it idealism? Is it just like another communism that sounds good but doesn't work? Earlier I asked you to consider, based on what I've said today, if Baha'i was make-believe or inspired... Is it more like the Book of Mormon and Joseph Smith? Is it more like David Koresh manipulating a group of people? Or is it a legitimate revelation from the absolute? Now I have to ask you, is there a difference between make-believe and inspired, do you think? Because maybe it doesn't matter. Let's go back for a second to my personal intuition that God is one and that what that oneness is is consciousness. Now, with this in mind, what is make-believe? Is it fantasy? Is it our hopes and dreams and our worst nightmares? Is it a way for us to represent in consciousness something which we want or, or wish for or are curious about? But where do our fantasies come from exactly? No one can say. They do not come from ourselves exactly. But there they are nonetheless. Perhaps then, as Young or Jordan Peterson might say, they come from the part of ourself we don't have access to, from the unconscious, from the part of ourselves that is God. So we might say the fantasy extends from God to man, and what it does is inspire us. Fantasy presents potential, what might be, and inspires us to bring something new into the world, to make ourselves new, and to make the world new. And isn't this the quest of, of all religions? To make from ourselves and from the world 
the paradise that we imagine it could be? So I ask again, is there a difference between make-believe and inspiration? Did God within you show you the fantasy of what might be of the world to come so that you can follow that fantasy and make it real? It's not a burning bush, but maybe it is. Maybe it is. Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored, but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know. It's not easy work. Thinking. It's hard and full of uncertainties, but I'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together. Here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze. See what I did there? Let's find out together in the next episode.